When you think about business competition, where are you focused? Your town, your state, across the country? You need to be concerned with competitors around the world. Welcome to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Today, you'll hear about the mega trends in global business and how they affect your organization, as well as explore issues, solutions, and some amazing facts about business worldwide. Now, here is your host, Mahesh Joshi. Welcome to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. I have with me Carl today discussing about his new book, The Fair Share Model. It's a pretty intriguing model. And uh, the book is a very interesting read. The purpose of this book is to spark a movement to reimagine capitalism at the DNA level itself. A capital structure of a company is its DNA. It defines ownership interests and voting rights. So everything that capitalism is or can be flows from the expression of qualities that originates in its capital structure. The fair share model is an idea for a performance-based capital structure for companies that raise venture capital via a public offering. Its mission is to balance and align the interests of investors and employees to offer public investors a deal comparable to what venture capitals get. It has two classes of stock in its concept. One trades, the other cannot. Both vote. Investors get the tradable stock, which is called investor stock. For past performance, employees get it too. For future performance, employees get the non-tradable stock, which is called performance stock. Based on milestones, performance stock converts into investor stock that can be sold in open market. The model's structure is simple. Its complexity flows from a question that is both philosophical and practical. What is performance? How that question is answered will vary. It can be whatever a company's shareholders say it will be. The idea behind fair share model is simultaneously radical and ordinary. It is radical because the model presents a different philosophy about how to structure ownership interests in public companies, whose value chiefly comes from their uncertain promise of future performance. Such companies have raised venture capital for decades via Wall Street initial public offerings. Recent changes in security laws that accelerate such activity. Another unique aspect of the fair share model is that it presents a way for middle class investor to participate in venture capital investing on terms comparable to what venture capitalists get. I have with me Carl today. Carl is an author and an entrepreneur. He was CEO and co-founder of a company, Fairshare, that was a front runner for the modern concept of crowdfunding. He is in Bay Area now. Prior to moving to San Francisco Bay Area in 1983, he lived and worked in for established manufacturing companies in St. Louis, Chicago, and the Detroit area. Carl has a BA degree in business and pre-law, as well as an MBA degree in finance from Michigan State University. He's also registered as a certified public accountant in Illinois. Hi, Carl. Hello, Mahesh. 
Hey, good to have you on the show today. And uh, I have read your book with a great interest. What a lovely book and what a phenomenal concept. The fair share model. Now, Carl, what is it, the fair share model? I enjoyed reading it, but if you can share with our audience and listeners, what is the fair share model? All right. Well, first off, thank you for having me on the show. Um, the fair share model, the subtitle is it's a performance-based capital structure for venture stage initial public offerings. Basically, what that means is the proposed, it's an idea for how to structure equity interest in a uh, venture stage company uh, that's raising venture capital in a public offering. Yeah, you know, Carl, most of the times uh, we come across many terms. <laughs> you know, people love to invest when they have some spare cash and some if, even if they don't have. So we hear a lot of terms. When you are outside the business, you see the terms IPOs, the venture capitalists, the crowdfunding, the angel investors. And nowadays, you and I and everybody is hearing a lot about uh, the, the people creating even markets with uh, or things like uh, Robin Hood and using social media like Reddit or something to make some moves. But when we are inside the business, we see that a lot of companies uh, from the past have been uh, using equity as an incentive. It's not only issue to the public and do it, and then public makes money as the company performs, but also to the employees. And uh, as I read in your book, even the employees are getting just the stocks as they were available to general public. They may not be paying or various models around it. What is different in the fair share model? Because I see... There is a, a very smart differentiation there that basis who's investing time, money, or what they are. There, there is a very balanced approach in your book. Yeah. It's a, let's first acknowledge that this is a big topic. It's complex, but it's not difficult. Uh -huh. so that's sort of the challenge is to, to make people feel who, who are not inside the business or uh, entrepreneurially oriented per se to feel like, Hey, this is, I can, I can talk about this as much as coronavirus and, and politics or um, most social issues. So the main, the, the main challenge uh, in a venture stage company, when I say venture stage, I'm basically referring to startups um, companies that may or may not, have revenue. If they do, it's, it's not very much. They certainly don't generate enough cash from their internal operations to fund themselves. So to survive, they're reliant on outside capital. And, and equity capital is ownership capital. Um, the, the alternative to that is some form of debt, something that uh, the company has to pay back. But when we hear about anything in the stock market, that deals with equity, stock. Um, it, and there's also forms of equity potentially in blockchain uh, type offering where, where it's initial coin offering. But the main issue I deal with is valuation. And there's a the point I make about valuation, how hard it is to 
reliably value an early stage company. I say it's akin to being put in front of a classroom of elementary school kids. And your task was ranking the kids based on who's going to be, who you think is going to be happiest in life or a success, however you want to define it. Um, you're going to have clues, but most certainly you're going to be wrong many, many times. And that's sort of the, the challenge for investors. And it's also a challenge for, for entrepreneurs. You know, what, the question is, what's the value at the time of investment of future performance? Mm -hmm. so, Valuation is key. You're right. So there's, there's, there's a, the fundamental difference uh, between the fair share model and conventional offerings is timing. When do you put a value on future performance? The conventional approach is to do it when you are in, the investor is, is investing money. Um, so if, if I went to you and said, Mahesh, I have an idea and I need some money. You'd say, how much do you need, Carl? I say, I need a dollar. Add zeros to make it more realistic. But, and you ask, what will you get for the money? I said, I'll give you half the company. It so happens that we're valuing my idea at a dollar because you're paying a dollar for your half and you break even if somebody buys a company for $2, right? But the risk is that you don't know, and I don't know, frankly, if my idea is worth a dollar, could be far less. So... The, 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 it's a timing issue. In a conventional offering, you place a value on future performance when the investor invests equity. With the fair share model, when the investor invests, no value is placed on future performance at all, zero. Instead, what there is is agreement between the company and the investors on how to define performance and how to reward it. So basically, then you have taken out the uncertainty because some empiricals have been used or methodology has been used up front to decide. Yeah, the, it, it, doesn't, it basically says, yeah, no one, no one can uh, figure this out any more than figuring out which kids are going to be uh, happiest in life um, ahead of time. So why, why try? Why not take... Uh, flip the script and do it very differently. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that this isn't totally without precedent. This, this basic approach is what's used by the most successful investors in venture stage companies, venture capital funds and private equity funds. When they invest, Conventionally, they do set a value on future performance. That's, that's the pre-money valuation. Um, but they insist on deal terms that mitigate or reduce their valuation risk. So if you were a venture capitalist and you invested that dollar in my brand new startup, even though you're getting 50%, we're agreeing that you get 50% of the company, let, let's say somebody short time later, offers to buy the company for $5. 
if you had a, a regular conventional capital structure, since you own half the company, you would get half of the proceeds, $2.50. But if you were a venture capitalist or a private equity investor, you would have deal terms that uh, enabled you to, to get more than half the acquisition price. Uh, you might get two-thirds. You might get all of it. Um, that's, that's the power of deal terms. Yeah. So, so the way those large private investors who were structuring the deals prior to going IPO route with at least guaranteed or some structured way of recovering their money, the fair share model allows the other investors also to be on the similar lines. Is that a fair statement? It is. It is. It, it takes the principle that is, uh, again, applied by the most successful investors in the venture space and in private capital and applies it to a public offering, one in which anyone can invest. Perfect. Now, Carl, we will take a short break here and uh, we'll continue our discussions after the break. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. For the past two years, Global Business with Mahesh Joshi has been a top-rated program on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, with its popularity growing, he has converted many of the concepts discussed on the show into an easy-to-read book from Oxford University Press, one of the top publishers in the world. Place your order for the book, Global Business, at mkjgb.com. Act now, and as a special offer, you'll receive a signed copy of the book by the author, Mahesh Joshi. Order today at mkjgb.com. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Tune in each week for the Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? Find out by listening to The Labenthal Report live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The 
This is Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. To reach the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's worldwide access to 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to maheshjoshi.82 at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. You are listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. And uh, we have uh, Carl with us talking about the fair share model. Uh, very intriguing. Carl, uh, thanks for the phenomenal information you shared in the first segment. Uh, I wanted to touch base on some of the basics of uh, the investment models, how people have been investing in IPO, how over the years, the whole structure has changed, the whole methodology has changed with the advent of technology. And actually, you touch base on the very latest, the Bitcoin model also. Now, uh, as I was reading in your book, uh, you mentioned it, that uh, in the past, when the IPOs were coming, when you were looking for investors beyond the the investment bankers, when it came to public, even the investment bankers would review the performance of a company and companies were very particular. They would be at least making some money <laughs> when they came to the market. And there were, some, there were some backgrounds there. There was a product, there was a process and there would be a factory or an office, some revenues, uh, a P&L and balance sheet to look at. Then it changed with uh, the advent of internet when, when that boom came in. And uh, then there were good storylines, the ideas in place and all those things and uh, uh, connecting with the future. And then came the next phase where it was, I have an idea. And uh, I need investors even to start with. So the skin in the game, which used to start in the earlier times was much bigger in terms of money, gradually went down uh, and it was an outside investors who were to rely and would look at the idea, evaluate and get the investment in. Nothing wrong with that because in the initial model, when you had to get a PL and balance sheet in place and some positive movement in financials to attract funding, Moving on to the latest model where I have an idea. So if you have a good idea and it was just not flourishing because of lack of capital is solved now because people can evaluate your idea and decide to invest basis this. And your model, which you're saying, fits in perfectly well with the current times that in such cases, employees have taken the company or the promoters, I would rather say the innovators who have come out with the idea and they are being compensated in one way, uh, which could be related to certain performance criteria or anything else and, and investors on the other criteria. So how do you see this transition? Because the timing of your model is perfect because if I look at this is my personal observation and some of the radio shows we have done on uh, the startups and others. The business models changed dramatically. Uh, 
from 80s to 90s, 1980s to 1990s, and when the 2000s started, and consistently changing. And if we look at the net job creation in last, let's say, 20 years after the, the financial crisis triggered by 9-11 in 2001, most of the job creation in the advanced economies like United States of America has come from startups and new technologies. You know, the so-called, the word unicorn, where these startups are doing so well and making money. And the conventional industry, <clears throat> brick and mortar, which came in in the era of uh, having a PL, having a balance sheet, and then invest, investors being attracted. So it's, it's very important in the current times for the business to grow, new ideas to flourish, uh, to have the startups promoted and allowed to build on the ideas, not that all the startups succeed. So the financial evaluation, the valuation model, and how to evaluate the performance of company financially as well as technically, the fair share model seems to be absolutely right there. Yeah, it, you have a lot there, Manish, and, and let me try to break it down a little bit. First off, sure. of the history, um, it's always been the holy grail of, of finance to try to figure out, well, what is a business worth? And the, the, uh, you know, one, one thing I realized as I was writing a book is that there's a recipe for financial models, uh, or at least capital models. It's uh, two parts tradition and one part technical matters. Mm -hmm. So, we tend to do what we, uh, what's been done in the past. And, and if you look at, say, the first 70 years or so of, of the 20th century, um, you see companies going public when they're ready, um, you know, when they have earnings, just like you said. And, and in fact, the popular way of, of evaluating uh, the value of a stock had a model called a dividend discount um, model, where the idea was that the return an investor could expect was based on a dividend. Right. And, and of course, public companies were expected to pay a dividend because they were profitable. They were well-established. Things started to change in the 70s, where you had some technology companies deciding they were going to go public. Notable examples are Intel and Apple, computer app, that's what they were called at the time. Got it. You know, the, the, uh, there was a, a state a regulator uh, of security back east that didn't allow uh, public investors in their state to invest in the Apple IPO because they said it was too risky. Um, they didn't have much revenue. It wasn't meeting those traditional uh, measures of stability and safety and investor appeal. Um, technology companies tend to lose money up front. They tend to be evaluated more on, on, on the idea, the market, than their actual performance. If you look at in the biotech area, 
virtually any biotech company has gone public to 1980. Many of them have had nominal or no revenue before they went public. So from, from a evaluation standpoint, it throws out that, um, well, the cousin of the dividend discount model would be future earnings. Um, right. But though here, here you have no company or many companies that are raising capital in the public market, having uh, earnings at the time or could credibly say when they were going to be profitable. Yet, people were making money because these companies tended, the most successful of them, tended to uh, uh, consolidate market share or create markets or, or approach new or old markets with new business models that were disruptive. Um, so the point is that that's why I use that example of going in front of a class of elementary school kids. It takes time to have a, a child develop and, and show their real features. And that's true with companies uh, as well. Now, one, a traditionalist might think, well, you, you can't go public, you know, before you're public, uh, I mean, you're profitable or um, well-established. I had a discussion with a uh, former Securities and Exchange, SEC com, um, examiner once. Mm -hmm. And I, I questioned him on this point. I said, it's, it's not true that you have to have be profitable before you go public, is it? And he said, no. And then he, get, he memorably said, you can sell stock in a dead horse. Mm. As long as you say it's a dead horse. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the gateway for a public offering is basically disclosure. The, the idea is that you, you tell people what they would need to know in order to appropriately analyze whether they, they want to invest or not. So that's really the standard. And you can do that with an idea. This company that we in the first segment talked about where you got half the company, I, I could easily, well, not, you know, within a few weeks and, and some legal work, um, have made it a public offering and sold you half of that in a public offering so you could resell your shares to somebody else. So things have changed, but things haven't changed. It's it, it just that, um, well, there, it is changing. There's, there's, there's a quote I have in the book from a guy who wrote a book called Rebooting Work. Uh-huh. And he said, uh, the half-life of a company is diminishing incredibly quickly. One third of companies listed in the 1970 Fortune 500 were gone by 1983, 13 years later. Meaning they were acquired, they were merged, or they split apart. So he goes on to say, the average life expectancy of a company in Standard & Poor's S&P 500 has dropped from 75 years in 1937 to 15 years in 2013 when he wrote the book. So companies are going public sooner. They're not lasting very long. Um, it, it, it's 
like a flower garden. Ah, sorry, I get your point. So basically, this is quite a bit uh, driven by technology movement also. You know, what we saw in the last 30 years, how things have changed from brick and mortar companies to technology companies. Not the brick and mortar has gone away, <clears throat> but the new businesses which are coming are more predominant on business model side than a product focus side. So, and that has, that has <clears throat> created an environment where uh, things have been changing so fast. So if you're not innovating fast enough, you may die. Even the financial models are changing. And uh, Carl, we'll continue our discussions after a short break. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. For the past two years, Global Business with Mahesh Joshi has been a top-rated program on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, with its popularity growing, he has converted many of the concepts discussed on the show into an easy-to-read book from Oxford University Press, one of the top publishers in the world. Place your order for the book, Global Business, at mkjgb.com. Act now, and as a special offer, you'll receive a signed copy of the book by the author, Mahesh Joshi. Order today at mkjgb.com. Tired of the get rich quick or how to flip home shows? Are you ready to step up your game and invest in commercial real estate? James Nelson, a top New York City broker, will show you step by step how to acquire, operate, and profit. You'll also hear from real estate legends on how they made their fortunes and industry experts on strategies for success. Tune in to Real Estate Investing, live from New York, on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Business. This is Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. To reach the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's worldwide access to 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to maheshjoshi.82 at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. You are listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. And I have with me Carl, and we are talking about the fair share model. Very interesting discussions, Carl, in the second session. Now we are into our third session, or I would call third segment of our radio show. Uh, can we get back to the basic concept of the fair share model? Yeah. So... Basically, on, on the cover of the book, I say it's reimagining capitalism at the DNA level because it balances and aligns the interests of investors and employees. Now, the structure of it is there's two classes of stock. This is for, again, for a company that is a venture stage company, so it's reliant on investor capital to survive. And it's a public offering, one in which anyone can invest. 
structure-wise, there's two classes of stock. Both vote, one trades, one doesn't. The voting, uh, the tradable stock goes to investors, the IPO investors and the pre-IPO investors. Employees get it as well for value generated as of the IPO date. When I say employees, I'm including founders. But for future performance, the employees get a voting stock that does not trade. It converts into the tradable stock based on milestones that the company describes in its prospectus, its offering document, or subsequently both classes of stock agree to. Those measures can be whatever they want. Um, but I broadly uh, outline five categories that I think companies might want to consider in the book. One is a rise in the market value of the company. Another one would be developmental goals like the release of a product or getting through FDA testing. Financial measures would make sense like sales and profits, but it should also include the eventual acquisition price for the company if that's relevant. Intriguingly, it can include measures of social good. So that would appeal to entrepreneurs that have a uh, different type of philosophy on how to approach capitalism and investors who want to support them. So that's the challenge for uh, a company. You know, you're going to say, we're going to offer investors a deal. They're not going to pay for um, upfront performance, upfront when they invest, um, but they're going to get diluted if we perform. And they have to identify how do they define performance and how do they propose to uh, reward it. Now, I should step back and say, that there are, let me give you an illustration, Mahesh, about how, how these would work out. Right. Um, so, step back for a moment. I say there's three types of equity structures, capital structures out there. A conventional capital structure, a modified conventional capital structure, uh -huh. their share model. A conventional capital structure is used in most IPOs, but it's also used in private offerings where there isn't a professional investor involved. So the hallmark of one is a single class of stock. So everyone's treated the same way. If you think in terms of literature, think in terms of the three musketeers, where the motto was all for one and one for all. Right. So if an investor holds, say, 10% of the shares, in a conventional capital structure and the company is acquired, the investor gets 10% of the proceeds. Very straightforward. A modified conventional capital structure is what's used by venture capital and private equity funds. Its hallmark is a multi-class capital structure, meaning more than one class of stock. You need to do that if you're going to treat some shareholders differently. Um, and what, what happens is that the sophisticated investors will require deal terms that allow them to increase their take of the wealth if things don't necessarily go as well as expected. So if a shareholder has 10% of the shares and it's a modified conventional capital structure and the company is acquired, it 
may get more than 10% of the proceeds, you may get 20, 40, 60, 80%, 100% at, at times. So it's very elastic uh, and, and, and it helps the professional investor uh, succeed in a high risk market with this high failure risk by reducing their valuation risk. If you wanna think in terms of literature, think in terms of George Orwell's Animal Farm, except here, all shareholders are equal, but some are more equal than others. So the third type is the fair share model, which I described. So here's the illustration. Let's assume that I have a company and I, over the last year or two, I've raised $2 million in private capital. Things are going pretty well. I'm ready to raise 20 million more. So I have two fundamental choices for where to get that money, the private market or the public market. If I go private, I'm talking about getting a venture capital fund because 20 million is a lot of money. If I do that, I'm gonna end up with a modified conventional capital structure, which has those risks. There's plenty of reasons why I as an entrepreneur might want to take that risk, but they're there. If I go to public market route, I have two options. I can use a conventional capital structure right. or fair share model. Uh -huh. So let's assume in this example that comparable companies to mine are considered worth $100 million. You'd expect me to file my IPO with a pre-money valuation of $100 million. Say I'm worth already $100 million because that's what comparable companies are worth. I would raise 20 million. Immediately after the IPO closes, my company would have a post-money valuation of 120 million. 100 pre-money, the 20 million in, in the IPO money, gives you 120. And then it would fluctuate in the secondary market based on what was going on there. If I were to use the fair share model to raise that 20 million in the public market, I would probably go out with a pre-money valuation of 10 million, not 100. 10 million gives it my $2 million in private capital, a little pop, but I'm not putting a value on future performance. So I'd go out with a pre-money valuation of 10 million, raise 20 million. Immediately afterwards, my post-money valuation would be 30 million. Why in the world would I do that? Well, the reason is that I've defined as an element of performance a rise in the market value of my company. Right. So I'm making a bet. And the bet is that investors in the secondary market, people who buy stock from other investors, are going to look at this and say, hmm, this company is undervalued. It should be close to 120 million. But here it is way down at 30 million. So the bet is that secondary market investors would go bid up the price of the stock. As that happens, some of that non-tradable voting stock, the performance stock, as I call it, held by uh, employees, is converting into the tradable stock held by the investors. That's diluting or shrinking the proportional share uh, that the investors have of the tradable stock. You'd think they wouldn't like that, but they don't care. Why? Because the value of what they have is going up 
In other words, even though this sl slice of a pie is smaller, the pie is getting bigger. So if that hits one of the features of a Fisher model, it adds an attractant for IPO investors to invest in an early stage company. Normally, investors are uh, drawn to a company based on the market it's in, the technology it's using, and the team. Now there's a fourth factor. It's a deal. It's like a Black Friday big screen TV on, uh, sale type of thing. So that, there's two big things that come out of a fair share model. I just touched on one. That is that it helps, can help a company raise capital in an IPO. But the second feature I think is more powerful. And that's where it comes to help companies attract and motivate employees. So um, imagine in this example, Mahesh, that I want to, I've had my fair share model IPO. Uh -huh. I've raised 20 million and I want to hire you. And you have an offer from Apple in your hand. I say, Mahesh, I, I can pay you a salary and it won't be as much as Apple's. I can offer you benefits and they won't be as nice as Apple's. I can offer you stock options on my tradable stock. And they have more upside than Apple's. But I can offer you something that Apple cannot. And that's an interest in my performance stock pool. That's the performance stock, the non-tradable voting stock. And it only has value if we, as a team, are delivering these results, Mahesh. So I, I think in terms of a historic analogy, the thing that resonates with me is this is uh, akin to um, Sir Walter Raleigh with the English fleet uh, being the fair share model up against the Spanish Armada, which would be the conventional model. So companies could have more, more capital than a fair share model company does, but it'd be bigger and more, more uh, established. But the fair share model company, company who uses it to, to raise capital, will be more effective at attracting and motivating employees. And in the long run, that is going to be more key. Perfect. I think that's a, that's a big one for employee retention. And that's very important in today's business. And uh, very well explained, uh, Carl. Um, we need to take a short break and we will continue our discussions in the fourth segment after the break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. For the past two years, Global Business with Mahesh Joshi has been a top-rated program on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, with its popularity growing, he has converted many of the concepts discussed on the show into an easy-to-read book from Oxford University Press, one of the top publishers in the world. Place your order for the book, Global Business, at mkjgb.com. Act now, and as a special offer, you'll receive a signed copy of the book by the author, Mahesh Joshi. Order today at mkjgb.com. It's time to take charge of your own career path. 
But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. To reach the program, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's worldwide access to 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to maheshjoshi.82 at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. You are listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi, and uh, we are having very interesting, intriguing, and amazing discussions uh, with Carl on his latest book, The Fair Share Model. Carl, uh, third segment was very nicely explained what you talked about uh, in follow-up to first two interesting uh, segments. I I will let you continue in this segment where we were before the break. All right. Well, I I think this would be nice to to sort of stand back and since your book it's global business um, yeah. um one of the intriguing things about exploring getting into the belly of the beast of capital formation and the like is that it just gets you gives you a new perspective on so many different things um i, I know i've discussed it in the book in terms of economic growth and uh, income inequality and, and the potential for cooperation to be a new tool for, for competition. In other words, the, a team that cooperates well um, could, could outcompete others. Um, so two things I wanted to cover. One is in terms of this performance stock, um, companies could be very creative as to how to use it. They could, they could uh, give some of it to their pre-IPO investors as a sweetener. Right. They could um, go to um, the key suppliers and say, if we come to a satisfactory agreement. Oh, this is phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but getting the key suppliers aligned with you <clears throat> using uh, the the equity model or the uh, as an investment in the company or the getting their stake into the company is is very important because they they are one of the most important part of any business sorry yeah. i interrupted you please go ahead yeah i'm glad you did um because it shows that resonating so that type of stock probably would be a different form of performance stock, maybe with non-voting. But the idea would be that uh, the supply chain could, could negotiate however they're going to on, on price and quality and, and delivery, but throw in as a sweetener, all right, if, if you perform well, 
I mean, we'll, we'll throw in, you'll, you'll have an interest in our performance stock. And if we do well, you'll do well over and above what you're selling us for. So that will bring out their best in, in terms of a supply chain. Um, there's yeah, there's so, so, so many aspects to this subject that can be fascinating, but let me switch gears and go to a different one. Because um, I know in your book, you talked about Brexit and the like. Right. Yeah. So one of the things I, I concluded was um, I, I, I developed an analogy for what was um, uh, troubling developed economies primarily in the U.S. and, and, and in Europe um, over the last few years. And here, here was a theory I came up with. And, and it works, visualize this, where there's a cutaway of the seashore and, and you have a tide that can keep in progression, go up higher, higher on the beach. Mm. So, and then imagine some columns, if you will. And, and at the low level, it's tribalism. Tribalism, tribalism is, is how early societies organize themselves. And as, as the water of the sea of public support rose, it, it, a new form of organization came to be, which was the city-states, because city-states offered more uh, opportunity for tribes to do well by working together. The Eventually, nation states began to displace city states because they offered more potential for economic and political power. Uh, then I imagine that about 80, in the 1980s, 70s, mm-hmm. start to see a rising support for transnational solutions. And the European Union was, was the best example of that. But uh, in, in North America, we had NAFTA. Uh, you had the Southeastern Asia. There was another proposal for uh, a treaty trade policy there. Um, the idea was if we bound together, we could, any economy could do better than it could by itself. And but the the pressure to do to do the transnational was I, I used an imagery of three moons uh-huh. on the distance on the horizon that are put like the effect that moons have on tide pulling it up you're attracting that higher tide and it continues as those moons climbed higher in the sky and they gained strength they pulled. They pulled away uh, to cause the tide to recede from transnational solutions to nation states and create a bit of an undertow for um, tribalism. And what those three moons were, were technology, economic theory, Uh and the supply of labor. So technology is a moon because fundamentally it makes it easier to move work. Used to be you could move it from one side of an office to another, or from office to the home, or from the rust belt to the sun belt. But now you can move it anywhere in the world very easily because it's in digital form. Um, 
economic theory had two components to it. The chief one was the idea promulgated by uh, Milton Friedman in the 70s that gained force in the 80s, that management job was to maximize the wealth of shareholders. And there was a related theory that came out of that, which was companies should focus on their core competency. So we saw companies that used to do all sorts of things begin to uh, outsource them into different uh -huh. areas. Uh, started off with IT operations and payroll, but got down to manufacturing um, and, and other aspects of a business that once were considered sacrosanct. The third thing, the supply of labor was triggered by the end of the Cold War. Because what happened primarily in Asia is that you had uh, economies that had been inward looking. They began to develop an export orientation. So here's the point. Mahesh, imagine you're president and it's the 1980s. Mm -hmm. Come up to you as one of your economic advisors and I say, Mr. President, I've identified the three drivers that are going to animate economic conditions and, and, and perspectives for several generations. And you go, well, what is it, Carl? I say, well, it's going to be easier to move work. It's going to be thought to be laudable to do that. And there's going to be more places to move it to. Ah. What's the play? <laughs> right. It's daunting. <laughs> and, and I don't have any solutions for that. I, I, I say in the book that, um, you know, we're not in an era of big, we're, we're in an era of big problems, but we're not in an era that, that lends itself to big solutions because we're too fractured. Um, but there's a potential to create a series, a mosaic of small solutions that contribute to addressing big problems. And that's where the fair share model fits in. It, it shows how communities of interest, self-defining around an economy or, or a, a, an industry or a company, they, they can create a, a web of share stakeholders that help them raise the capital, but also um, focus on doing what's needed, however they, however they want to define it. Again, it could be measures of social good if, if it needs be. But that type of fluidity of defining stakeholders and re rewarding them, um, I think offers some potential opt uh, for optimism in the future. Uh, I think the overall arc that we see in, in the social, political, economic realm is that since the 70s, the return on capital has held up pretty well. But the return on labor has been diminishing. Ah. And, and that's created inequality. Mm -hmm. And... and when it becomes too big of a problem, everyone starts acting strange. It divides us. We, 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 it makes us le we believe weird things. 
and our worlds are, are a trust in one another. So it's hard to deal with these things. Again, I don't have a great solution to it, but I do think capital formation, how we define the interest of capital and labor how, can make a big difference. And the fair share model makes it possible for those who rely on the return on labor, primarily mm-hmm. average investors and most employees to participate in the higher return on capital. That's fantastic. Carl, very well explained. Very intriguing. And I congratulate you for uh, uh, including all these wonderful concepts in your book. And uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time and uh, we had to close uh, the show. But I do want to highlight that while I was reading the book, I was picking up some very simple things from that, which can mentally allow us to do a lot of good things beyond capital also, or capital allocation, like the equation you had given, anxiety equal to uncertainty time powerlessness. Very powerful. Similarly, the best one I saw was happiness. Yeah. You know, what is happening minus expectations. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's so phenomenal that if you, you may be, you may be doing a lot of things, a lot of things would be happening around you, but you artificially raise the expectation beyond that, you will never, ever be happy. Whereas even with incremental happenings or results, if you are managing your expectations well, you can be very happy. Similarly, the other one, I just want to share with our listeners, performance equal to results minus expectations. Now, just do not keep match the results and expectation. That's performance. Result, yes, we are supposed to get. So some of these things I I, I found very intriguing and very, very interesting in your book. And when you talk about the mindset and all that, lovely. It's, It's amazing. So I thank you so much for being on the show today and uh, sharing um, your research and knowledge and what you're trying to do. I find it very intriguing, very interesting, and I'm very sure our listeners will also enjoy it. And uh, thank you, Carl. Thank you, Mahesh. I hope the, uh, your listeners will join in this social movement to reimagine capitalism. Absolutely. Thank you. You've been listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. We hope you'll tune in for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a good week.